1: It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nexo.io, Chainalysis, and FTX, and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Saturday, July 23rd. And instead of our normal weekly recap, we are rounding out Midsummer Macro with Chow Wang. Before we get into this conversation, however, if you are enjoying The Breakdown, please go subscribe to it, give it a rating, give it a review, or if you want to dig deeper into the conversation, come join us on The Breakers Discord. You can find a link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash breakdownpod. Also, a disclosure as always, in addition to them being a sponsor of the show, I also work with FTX. So for this final episode of this mini-series on Midsummer Mecro, I am excited to welcome back returning guest Chow Wang. Chow has done a ton in the crypto space, with his most recent contributions focused around Alliance DAO. Alliance is an accelerator-slash-startup mentorship program that works with companies in DeFi, DAOs, NFT, infrastructure, and more. Full disclosure, I am also an investor in Alliance, but much beyond his work in that front, I've just long found Chow to be one of the most insightful, clear-eyed thinkers and communicators in the crypto space. In this conversation, we talk about how this bear market is different what he believes needs to get built, and most of all, why he can't see any long-term reason to be bearish. Without any further ado, let's dive in. All right. Welcome back to the show. So good to have you here again. How have you been? Good. What's the latest in your world? I see you kind of moving effortlessly in between big picture, kind of helping people ground themselves and and where the market cycle we are all the way down to very specific specifics of what we need to build next but you know is that, is that where you're living right now yeah we just wrapped up our uh, latest demo day where uh, 16 of our best
2: teams graduated basically top one percent of all the teams we've seen uh work very closely with them both on the big picture as well as like the super detailed you know go-to-market strategy token design that kind of stuff
1: amazing so we're gonna get into uh to Alliance and and some of the specifics that you guys are both seeing out there, but also what you're interested in seeing. But I want to kind of start on a slightly higher note, I think, first, and just get your sense of kind of how you see the setup right now, how you see this bear market, what to you isn't different about it, as opposed to other market cycles crypto has gone through. I think this bear
2: market is mostly different, actually, from previous bear markets in a sense that this is primarily a macro-driven bear market. And in fact, the rise in 2020, the the outside of the bull market, was arguably also driven by macro, right? It was when uh, COVID hit and then the Fed started easing, right? And now the exact opposite is happening. And so, like, you know, I I think right now the the most incorrect consensus view in crypto is that we're going to see a long bear market in the exact same way as all previous bear markets, but... I think that the fact that this last bear market lasted four years was more likely a coincidence because if the Fed did not actually tighten in November last year, we could have easily had a five-year or six-year bull market, in my opinion. So moving forward, we're going to be in a new regime. I think the regime of four-year crypto cycles is over. The new regime we're in is a three-way tug of war between growth, inflation, and macro. Basically, it all boils down to the Fed and and the economy.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's super interesting. I mean, this is a lot of what this show is about. So I, I'm very kind of aligned here. I want to actually kind of dig just a little bit deeper into this on a couple points because you had a great tweet recently about kind of why you can't find a good reason to be bearish if you kind of zoom three ish years out, right? And the three reasons that you mentioned, roughly speaking, in terms of why not or, or kind of things that people are bearish about that you're not so sure about are one, contagion, not being as bad as everyone thinks or not necessarily being as bad as everyone thinks. Two is the temporariness of this Fed tightening. And I want to dig into that a little bit more with you. And then third is sort of the inevitability of regulation. So I want to just kind of take a minute on on each of those beats and and just kind of talk about, you know, maybe we'll start with the contagion piece.
2: So the the contagion is obviously really, really, really bad. And it's actually a lot worse than I had originally expected when, like before three arrows, like I I did not expect three arrows to blow up at all. I knew that people who are close to three arrows also did not expect it. So the contagion was really, really bad. However, what's important here is that the contagion is not the cause, but the symptom of the bear market. What actually triggered the bear market was the tightening. And even if three hours did not blow up, the market would find another way to deleverage itself. And, and that is a symptom, not the cause. That's one thing that's very different from this uh, bear market to, to the previous one.
1: Gonna ask, like, do you think also, um, you know, obviously we are kind of in still in the eye of that storm where it feels very present, but uh, you know, to the extent that there are a number of folks out there who think that while there's still potential pain in the market themselves, you know, we don't necessarily have that much more contagion coming down the pipeline. Do you think that we might kind of reevaluate our assessment of even though Three Arrows was such a remarkable outlier, it will feel like an outlier looking backwards in terms of what could have been in terms of how much leverage there was in the system and how much could have blown up that actually didn't.
2: I started to think three hours is an outlier. Again, the fact of the matter is three hours is just one of the many ways in which the market could have de-leverage itself.
1: I mean, it sounds like your thesis is kind of like there was going to be some amount of deleveraging. It happened to come in this sort of cataclysmic feeling, you know, single implosion with a bunch of ripple effects, kind of way, instead of a number of smaller institutions kind of leveling up into something bigger, you know. However, else it might have deleveraged. That's right. So that was one piece of this kind of thesis was around the contagion not being as bad. The other kind of two parts that you mentioned there might be more, but in in that particular tweet was the inevitability of regulations, what feels like sort of the inevitable temporariness of this tightening of monetary policy.
2: Yeah, I think the biggest problem that's happening in the US right now is the level of national debt, uh, both public and private. Uh, There's actually no way, I don't know the exact numbers, but there's no way to keep the interest rate at well above 5%. Like there's no way for the debt to be sustainable. In the long run, the U.S. has to inflate the debt away via inflation, via negative real rates. And real rates is, is basically the difference between inflation and nominal interest rate. So they can't keep the nominal interest rate very high or else the country is going to go bankrupt. And so the, this tightening right now that's happening right now cannot be sustainable. They have to keep the real rate of interest at a negative level.
0: In times like these, security of your assets should be your number one priority. If you want to offset risk as much as possible and still stay in crypto, you need a trusted partner by your side. Nexo is a security-first company that manages risk by relying on mechanisms such as over-collateralization, real-time auditing, and insurance on custodial assets. Learn more about Nexo's reliable business model and start your crypto journey at nexo.io. That's nexo.io. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigations support for all crypto assets. For organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi, Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting us now at chainalysis.com coindesk. The breakdown is sponsored by FTX US. FTX US is the safe, regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin and other digital assets with up to 85% lower fees than competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees and no withdrawal fees one of the largest exchanges in the U.S. FTX U.S. is also the only leading exchange that supports both Ethereum and Solana NFTs. When you trade NFTs on FTX, you pay no gas fees. Download the FTX app today and use referral code BREAKDOWN to support the show.
1: This is, I think, the place where short-term meets the long-term view, right, if you have it. The Fed seems very intent on not kind of... Jerome Powell keeps talking about how he's not going to be another Arthur Burns, right? He's not going to back off too soon with the, you know, like like the Fed did in the 1970s. He's not going to let inflation become endemic. But is your base case then that you know, maybe they stick with it, they kind of even drive the country into recession. But once this sort of 9% inflation starts to meaningfully come down, they just back off and we go back to the same sort of secular regime we were in before.
2: I think the the tightening is temporary. However, the secular regime is actually different, is going to be a high inflation regime. So so that's the extent to which things are different right now. Um, but the point being, um, I think Jerome and the Fed is trying to pretend that they're fighting inflation. In actuality, they cannot fight it. They have to pick between national bankruptcy and and inflation in the long run. And they just can't pick inflation.
1: One of the interesting things is they're going after the only lever they have, which is demand destruction. And to some extent, it it feels like the play from almost an optics standpoint is just to push on the lever they have until hopefully you know people stop doing things enough that the things that they actually thought were causing inflation in the first place, i.e. supply chains, can resolve themselves. It's almost like their assessment of transitory wasn't even necessarily wrong. It might have just been like four years transitory to get sorted. And so now they have to kind of grind things to a screeching halt while it catches up or something like that.
2: One interesting insight that I read is not my original thought, but I just want to share it because it's really interesting. The fact that in the 2010s, We've done a lot of QE. However, the QE did not generate any inflation. And that was, again, by and large, a coincidence because the the 2020s was a decade of very strong stock market and very weak commodity market. So the money that was printed went to the stock market reflexively, whereas in this new decade, it's likely that the stock market is going to be weak because it was very overpriced whereas the commodity market is in a secular bull market. So if we do QE now, that money will actually flow into commodity market, which by definition generates high inflation. It's a self-reinforcing loop.
1: Super interesting. We can talk about this piece all day, but I want to get to the other other piece and then I want to kind of dig deeper into some of the industry stuff too, because you have so many interesting thoughts there. But I guess the last piece is just the sort of inevitability of regulations. Talk to us about that for just a moment.
2: I mean, regulations were, were always going to come. It was very obvious in the 2018 cycle, like after all that bullshit with ICOs, and all that stuff, it was inevitable. But I think right now it's possible, but it's very unlikely for G7 to impose a full ban on crypto because of the amount of, the percentage of the population and politicians who already own crypto. It's just very hard democratically to go against these people. Um, so uh, regulations are going to come, but... It's very unlikely to be a full ban.
1: I agree with that. I mean, I think that everything that we've seen in the U.S. this year is like broken to the upside. If the upside is more positive than we might have expected, you know, not that there aren't still like a lot of very specific, discrete, problematic battles that that could be have in terms of the the nature and shape of the industry. But by and large, you know, there's literal zero talk of U.S. bannings uh, of the industry and instead a bipartisan group of senators proposing, you know, kind of this middle space between securities and commodities to define these assets. It's just I don't think anyone was kind of expecting it to be that level of discourse, you know, from the U.S. government this year. So the final part of that tweet was sort of more like the flip side. Why not just why reasons not to be bearish, but reasons to be bullish. And what you specifically kind of pointed to was record number of of founders applying to Alliance and your biggest, single most important metric of developers coming into the space in terms of its its long-term health. So with that, let's segue to Alliance and just give us a little bit of the, the backstory, how it started, how it's evolved and where it is today and what maybe the most recent class shows in terms of what you're seeing builders be focused on out there.
2: Yeah. So Alliance started a little bit before DeFi summer in 2020. It was actually end of 2019, early 2020. So arguably we played a a role in, in the DeFi summer, but the way we did was we we matched, um, you know, we we brought a group of people, a group of founders, uh, some of the best startups back then, ZeroX Synthetics, you know, Kyber, all these guys, uh, alongside uh, market makers from traditional finance like Jump, like Jump actually got into DeFi partly because of us, uh, Jump and other other market makers. But over time, uh, obviously, crypto Web three uh, expanded well beyond DeFi. Last year, we had a boom in NFTs, in DAOs, you know, so on and so forth. So uh, Alliance ourselves, we expanded into all these different verticals. So we expanded in terms of verticals, in terms of the number of uh, founders. You know, our our first cohort was like five startups. Now we're around 20. And by the way, we're not going to go much beyond that because we want to make sure that every startup gets as much support from us as possible by keeping the the number low. Basically, the, the two main things that we do for our startups, one is uh, we give them our time. We really spend a lot of time for each and every one of our startups. Some of them talk to us almost on a daily basis. And the other thing is the founders have access to each other. They support each other. We noticed over the years that, especially for like super low-level technical stuff or legal stuff or stuff like that, token design, that kind of stuff, founders are actually able to help each other better than investors can help them. So we, we provide a, a network, a platform for these founders to,
1: to support each other. I mean, it's super cool. You know, I've been watching uh, for a long time and, you know, I was watching the demo day yesterday and the presentations. I think the slide I saw uh, from you was that there was like 25% infrastructure plays, 25% DeFi, 25% uh, NFTs, and then the rest split between DAOs and gaming. Maybe let's expand this out from just this particular class of alliance, but just more broadly. You just published this epic Crypto Web 3 startup ideas that goes through a huge number of categories. How much has that been shaped by what you've seen you know, people applying with or not applying with in Alliance? If you'd like, let's get into maybe a few of the things that you think are most important as we go into this bear market for areas for people to focus on.
2: Yeah, there was certainly, by and large, a new group of people. Uh, that form the NFT community. Like if you look at the quote-unquote crypto Twitter today, the NFT Twitter is actually very like excluded or or mutually exclusive yes. from the uh, from the OG crypto Twitter, right?
1: It, it it almost does not understand that it exists. It's like a totally separate phenomenon. Yeah, yeah.
2: So so the NFT stuff is is net new, new set of founders and new set of communities and users for sure. The DAO stuff is, I feel like it's primarily crypto-native. Infra is crypto-native. DeFi is crypto-native. The NFT people are
1: not new to, to our community. Do you think that that brings actually like a positive energy in the sense of it being sort of not constrained by the same set of uh, of expectations of I don't know old battles like it certainly seems like nice to not have the the same kind of uh uh you know holy wars that crypto Twitter has had for the last five years or whatever
2: the NFT community is certainly something that that really inspired a lot of new founders from Web two. And a lot of investors from Web2, like most of Web2 people, Web2 native people, they don't get DeFi. They don't get like the super hardcore tech, but they get NFTs. You know, NFTs touch a bunch of different things. They touch, you know, uh, fashion, art, music, games. Mm-hmm. Games, for me, is probably the biggest category of NFTs. So it really inspires a lot of new people. Definitely a huge net positive for, for the industry.
1: One of the things that DeFi did that was so important in 2018, and obviously a lot of those projects had started even before that, but in 2018, after the ICO kind of tokenized all the things narrative had had imploded on itself, DeFi really returned the whole industry to its roots of money Legos and finance and kind of bringing composability to actual, I mean, decentralized finance, right? It's right there in the name, the, the kind of money side. A lot of the Web2 folks that hadn't gotten into crypto, it was because they're not inherently or natively kind of, they don't think in money terms, in the sense of financial infrastructure, and it kind of tracks that it would take something that was really outside of that moneyness milieu for them to kind of grok the the Web three you know uh, idea.
2: One of the main differences between the OG DeFi stuff and the new wave NFT stuff is that the OG DeFi people they really understand the Lego component of the money mm-hmm. Lego. They really understand the composability, like. The all, basically all the, the the majority of DeFi projects that, that that we see, they think about how they can compose with the rest of the community. On the other hand, the NFT projects that started uh, last year or, or earlier this year, the vast majority of them think in term from a Web two perspective. Like they, they try to build like an NFT Twitter or NFT Reddit or whatever. They don't think they don't put a lot of emphasis on, on the protocol side of things. And the protocol is really what makes Web3 social or messaging interesting because for the first time, you're able to build multiple clients permissionlessly on, on top of the same protocol, right? The protocol can uh, compose with other stuff in, in, in Web3, including DeFi and you know, games and whatever, right? Um, th- this fundamental um, uh, nature about comp- composability is, is something that... that um, that, that differentiates the, the, the DeFi OGs with um, the Web2 people that got into this industry last year
1: super interesting observation so what do you think kind of broadly speaking nfts have had now i mean they had their very first gasp before they were called we were calling them nfts with crypto kitties and you know the first set of people who were kind of writing about them and then they had their real kind of gasp of, of, obviously from nba top shots all of the way through the pfp projects you know to where we are now what do you think is important in this sort of you know this bear cycle in terms of the evolution of that space what's important to, to be built or or kind of ways to consider the industry that are maybe be different than people are looking at it now?
2: For me personally, the, the most exciting thing is gaming. I haven't seen a ton of really exciting gaming thesis, but the thesis that we have is um, fully on-chain games. By, by fully on-chain games, I mean not just the NFTs and the currencies that are put on-chain, but also the entire game logic and the game states. So if you take a game of chess, for example, all the rules are coded on-chain, And each and every one of the moves will be coded on-chain as well. So that's what I mean by fully on-chain games. Um, I think 99% of games I've seen so far are sort of taking a very popular genre from traditional gaming, like first-person shooters or real-time strategies, and then add some NFTs into it. It it could work, but that's not really what crypto is is all about. What what crypto is about is um, the ability for third-party developers to build on top of your game. Uh, One of the best analogs for that is, if you think of DeFi, the the, the truly OG DeFi from DeFi, DeFi Summer 2020, you can think of that as a game. It's a multiplayer online game. And MEV is one of the main game loops. And then you have a bunch of players playing that MEV game. You have real human players, right, that are trading in DeFi, but you also have third-party developers building a bunch of bots on top of these DeFi protocols. And they play this, this game of MVV against each other, but also against humans, right? And this is what excites me about fully on-chain games is you allow any person around the world to build extensions to the game, to build mods on the game, to build like their guilds of automated players on top of these games. Like This is what I think is going to make crypto gaming really interesting.
1: Yeah. The way that you put it, I think in this long note about uh, about ideas or things that you'd like to see in terms of startups was, I mean, it's a really simple way to put it, but weird behaviors that weren't possible before. And it's really hard if you're deep in the game space to sufficiently like rip yourself out of what is or isn't a game to like kind of reimagine from the ground up. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if if in some ways, the you know, interesting crypto games come out of like, collaborations between non-traditional people and gamers you know so there's kind of not just repeating the logic of of games that we have um, maybe maybe along that because I actually really like this uh defi as game mental model I mean one of the things that I thought was so interesting watching you know defi summer the first time around and and even that I think has been hugely to defi's benefit is that in many ways it was a game where the rules and tools of the game were sophisticated enough that it was like a very enfranchised set of players. And I think that's been to its great benefit in terms of like, things like exploits are shaken off, like, oops, I lost the level, you know, <laughs> then, <laughs> then like, okay, now this is like a, a thing that we shouldn't do anymore. And should we should have investor protections, because it was simply the barriers to entry are so high at this early stage that it was sort of self selecting for people who kind of knew the stakes. Look at uh, another area, DAOs. Like you've had some great tweets about skepticism, not of DAOs in principle, but in terms of like what people kind of try to lump into the category of DAOs. I think you said something to the effect of uh, you've always thought uh, shoehorning crypto into their business idea just for the sake of it was super cringe. So I guess how do you see? You know, do you see DAOs as a part of this? You know, because in some ways it feels like a lot of the DAOs that people love being a part of that are super simple, like we pull resources towards the things we're excited about do have that game feel to them, you know, like Constitution DAO was, if you reframe it in some ways, a time-limited game where it was like, can we race to get uh, as many resources in to actually buy this real-world artifact, right? You know, what are the tools we have available to us? It's like, okay, I don't know, uh, who can get in touch with Nick Cage? Who can, you know what I mean? Like, how do you see DAOs in this framework of games and social experiences, but more broadly, just how you see the evolution you know, over the next couple of years as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, the biggest problem with DAOs is the decision by committee. Uh, it's never going to work. For me, what decentralization means is checks and balances. It's not decision by committee. So the governance models will evolve a lot over time. And there's not going to be one model that fits all. It's going to be whatever model that works very well for the specific product that they're trying to build. So we're going to see a lot of different models. I think that's probably the, the most important thing that's going to happen.
1: So I know we have, to, we have to wrap this up. I could uh, jam with you on this stuff for quite some time. And at some point, I want to come back and talk about bigger macro ideas. You had a great tweet coming off of listening to a Bology podcast about the year 2030. But I guess to wrap up, as we dig or settle into maybe this bear market, like what are you kind of most nervous about? And what are you most excited about? I'm not really nervous
2: about anything. This is like the first time in almost two years I feel at peace. I feel like it's finally contrarian to be in crypto again. Last year, it was extremely stressful for me.
1: I feel like you've come back to Twitter. It's been very nice for me as someone who exactly. like, watches Twitter. I came Twitter. back yeah. because of
2: the bear market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but excited about everything that's happening, like from from gaming to infra. We're going to build more infra because obviously uh, last cycle proved that infra is not good enough. We're going to build more scalability and stuff, more games, messaging, web three native messaging. I think uh, that's going to be... Something I, I've been thinking about a lot lately. DeFi is making a comeback. Uh, recently, it feels like there's like people are are getting some sort of uh, hungover from the other stuff that happened during the bear market. And DeFi did not participate in the bull market at all. But now yeah. founders are thinking about DeFi again. So
1: awesome. Well, I, I'm excited to have you back, even if it's just for while things are quiet. It's a nice counter cyclical upside for those of us who like your thoughts. And so, thanks as always for coming on the show.
2: Likewise, thank you.
1: Hey guys, back to NLW here. Just want to give one more big thank you to my guest, Chao Wang, my sponsors, Nexo.io, Chainalysis and FTX for supporting the show and to you guys for listening. Until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.
0: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.